Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. Our guest's love for cars started at a young age when he bought his first classic car, a 1940 Ford Coupe, for just $20. Working alongside his brothers-in-law to restore it, he got hooked on classic car ownership and restoration. His passion for Corvettes was ignited when he traded in a sensible Oldsmobile for a 66 Corvette convertible during his college years. However, he had to sell it when family responsibilities called. Pete Vacari became heavily involved in the auto auction scene, starting with local sponsorship and eventually establishing the Vacari Auction Company. Today, the company employs professional auctioneers and holds annual auctions in conjunction with events like Cruise in the Coast. And he's here with us tonight to tell us all about it. With that, let's welcome Pete Vacari to Break Fix, along with my co-host, William Ross from the Exotic Car Marketplace. How y'all doing, guys? Good to be with y'all. Thanks for being out. We appreciate it. Well, like all good break fix stories, let's talk about the who, what, when, and where of Pete Vicari. Let's go back to those early memories. How were you turned into a car lover, especially a fan of Corvettes? I have two older sisters. We lived on a lot of acreage, and on Sundays, my sisters would barbecue for all their friends. Well, her friends, boyfriends came over, and it was like a car show every Sunday at my house with all these badass cars. And because I was younger and they had boyfriends coming around the time, let's say mid 60s, you know, maybe 64 to 70. So all the American muscle cars, they had some really bad cars. I mean, they had 390 Mustangs. One of them had a Boss 429 Mustang. You know, like one of them had a 65 Belvedere that he ordered brand new. And listen to this, guys. It was a 426 lightweight four-speed car. And when my brother-in-law got married to my sister, my dad made him sell the car because he said, you're not going to put my daughter and potentially a family in that car. And I begged my daddy to buy it and put it in the warehouse and he wouldn't. Years later, we were at a sale and one sold for like $400,000. He said, I wish I'd have listened to you. <laughs> That's how I started because of the influence from my older sister's boyfriends would then, they got married and then they were my brother-in-law's. But from there, you know, it was on. Once I bought my first car and my brother-in-law's helped me with the 44, we tore it all apart, repainted it, put a 283 in it with automatic. And within about two months, I was 15 years old driving in the neighborhood without a driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was fun back then. So do uh, your brother-in-law still have a lot of cars? Do they still have them, stuff like that, or toys? Or do they kind of go the path where they had to get rid of them because of family? No, they're older now. They're in the almost 80s. And, you know, they drool over stuff like that. But, you know, they don't have cars anymore. I'm the only nut that still does it. <laughs> Quite honestly, at one point in my life, my collection was almost 70 cars, all Corvettes. You know, it just got to be too much. And I sold them to a friend of mine, most of them. But I kept a lot of the rare stuff. Starting out with that early Ford and some of the other cars, you gravitated toward Corvette very quickly. Why 
the C2, why the 66 in particular, why the Stingray? What drove you to the car and how did you end up with your first one? And how did that turn into a lifelong passion for Corvettes? I was at my dad's office one day and a friend of his there had, I want to say a 69 or 70 four-door Oldsmobile. Big thing. I mean, a big land yacht thing. And he heard I was going to college the next week. And he says, look, I want to give you this car as a graduation. I was taking it to trade in because my wife don't like it. It was a brand new car. It was too big for him. And my dad said, no, indeed not, Bob. I can't let you give that car to my son. He turned to me and he said, how much money you got in your pocket? I might have had $100. I mean, he said, give it to me. It's your car. I didn't want to go to college in that. Well, anyway, I ended up with the car. And that very next weekend when I was coming home from college, on a used car lot with this 66 Corvette, 375 horse car, automatic, four speed, $1,200 on the windshield, matching number car. Now, back then, we who knew about matching numbers, anything like that? So I pull in there and I didn't know what I was really buying. All I knew was a 66 Corvette convertible with two tops. I told the guy, I said, look, I'll trade you even up. I'll give you this car for the Corvette because I was like $100 in the car. So he said, okay, good, good deal. So we go in, we get ready to do the paperwork. He looks at the title. Well, I didn't know it, but the guy was a friend of my dad. He looks at my name. He says, I can't do this deal. And I said, why? He said, because your car is worth twice what you want. And your dad's going to be upset with me if I do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, and the guy was being honest. He wasn't taking advantage of a 17-year-old kid. I left there, went to my girlfriend's house. My girlfriend's daddy said to me that week, he liked the car. So I told him, I said, if you want to buy this car, give me $1,500. He took $1,500, gave it to me. I sold him that car, and I went and bought the car that for $1,200. That's how I ended up with it. That's what started it. And man, 60-something Corvettes later, I've got some of the rarest Corvettes around, prototype Corvettes. When I ask one of our more popular, what we call pit stop questions, and that's the sexiest car of all time question. For you, is that? The Corvette, is that specifically, let's say, the C2, one of the other Corvettes? Or is there something else out there that you're like, wow, that's a really good looking car? I like my Corvettes. Okay, I will say that. But I do have a replica of a 1957 Bugatti Atlantis. My wife and I drove in the great race, that cross-country race. I used to sponsor that. I can't go anywhere with that car. People follow me. They're on the side of me. If I go to a gas station, I'm there for 20, 30 minutes telling people about the car. It was a hit through the whole race. And that, I think, is one of the coolest looking cars, you know. But I still love my vets. I will say that. So you've lived through almost the entire evolution of the Corvette. If you kind of think about it, you look over its long history. It's celebrating 70 years this year. Of all the Corvettes, which is the best? And what do you think of the new C8? Well, the best Corvette to me is the C2. I like the Midget. I did have a few L89 Corvettes, 69, but the Midgets are the one I like. Now, the C8s, believe me, I think GM knocked it out the park on that. For the money, for what you get, that is a great car. I just can't see me owning a new Corvette, though. I sold them at an auction, and I tell people all the time, they're great, but... I got a bad back and I can't get in and out of them like I used to. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think Corvette should have gone mid-engine earlier? Do you think it was a little late waiting to the eighth generation to put it out there? I think so. Yeah, it should have came out a little earlier. Hey, they knocked it out the park. I really think they're great cars. All my customers, they end up buying them. They love them. I have a nice lady that bought one. 
kind of when she bought it at the auction, when it sold, I turned and gave her $100 out of my pocket. And she said, what's this for? I said, that's towards your first ticket. <laughs> she, her husband came back a few minutes later. He gave me the $100 back and said, if she gets a ticket, this car's coming back to you. But she's been good. I've seen her lately and she hasn't got a ticket. They did a great job on that. You don't hear many negative comments or reviews on that C8. As we're coming out with the subsequent upgraded models, the Z06, then you know, the Zora, the E-Ray, they're just improving on it that much more. And yeah, it's a fabulous looking car. I haven't had the opportunity to drive one yet. I'd love to. But yeah, they, they knocked it out of the park with that. They did. The Corvette really is a Swiss army knife. It caters to everybody. If you want a sports car, you want a show car, you want a race car it could do it all and it's proven it time and time again i mean when you look at the corvette's history it's absolutely amazing there's very few cars i think the 911 and a couple others are in that same category where it's pretty much in every person and every motorsport type of vehicle where you can find a corvette out there no matter what the situation is you can look at the price a normal guy can afford it exactly sometimes there's a storm cloud in every story and you being from the deeper South, especially in the New Orleans area, we all remember Hurricane Katrina being a car collector. I'm sure there was you know, an impact to you. There's a lot of devastation in that area, especially in the French Quarter, et cetera. How did Hurricane Katrina impact you and your business and your collection? And how did you bounce back from that? The neighbor's building fell onto my building. My car survived. The insurance company came in. There was no damage to them, but they all got soaking wet because the block wall just stripped my wall off, but my structure was up. So it just rained in there for days. The worst part about that whole ordeal was on the wall that got damaged, I had built the 1988 Republican convention. And at the end of the convention, there was a flag drop that was when the fireworks went off, this big flag fell out of the ceiling of the dome. Well, that flag was on the wall and it just got ripped to shreds. That's the worst part of that. And my buddy Henry Shane's collection was the same thing. I mean, he had 54 Buick Skylarks where beams just fell right on top of the cars. He had a Boss 429 that got damaged also. But Katrina was a devastating storm. A lot of people lost their lives. There's a lot of property damage, but it kind of changed the whole environment there. It made other parishes outside that metro area grow even faster. And I bring it up because it's important to your original Corvette story, because at some point you ended up selling off your original 66 Corvette, and then you went on a journey to refine it. And part of that was discovering it as a result of the impact of Katrina. So sort of walk us through that, how you found it, the restoration process and so on, and bringing that original Corvette home to you. We have two boys. And when my boys were, let's say, seven, eight, I sold it because I felt like it was just sitting around. My wife said, you know, we really ought to get rid of that car before it deteriorates, blah, blah, blah. So we did. So one day I was cleaning out my desk drawer and I ran across, this was years after I sold it. We used to have what's called a pink slip. It was like a registration, but it was the pink slip. And I had a friend of mine that worked for the state run the VIN number. And lo and behold, the address that this guy lived at sounded familiar to me. And it was in Slidell, it was across the lake from New Orleans. That next day, I asked one of my superintendents because he lived there. And I said, where's this address? Because I know you're in Slidell. And he looked at the address and he said, well, that's my street. And he said, the number, that must be right next to my house. (laughs) I said, well, does the guy next door to you have a red Corvette? 
He says, yeah, I told you about that call years ago because Mike, my superintendent, been with me 20 something years. But, you know, I was so busy involved in business. And when he said it, it just went over my head. And then when he told me that, I said, wait a minute, you telling me this call is next to you? He says, yeah, I see it every week. The guy goes out and drives, whatever. I said, well, when you go home, I need to talk to the guy. And he called me and we stayed in touch. And he was the regional U-Haul representative, kept it at the U-Haul facility in a storage container. And don't you know, Katrina comes, it's in New Orleans East, and that's where all the flooding happened. That call was literally a submarine. I mean, it was over the roof. And he called me, he says, look, the insurance company wants to give me $20,000 if I want to keep the car off of the settlement. And I said, I'll pay it. Keep the car. I'll give you the 20. He said, done deal. So that's how I got it back. And I'm going to tell you, this call was a submarine. Within five hours, we had that call running. The gas cap was sealed. And when we opened the gas cap, they had a half a tank of gas and the water didn't go into the tank. So we flushed the motor out with all and we used some diesel and cleaned the carburetor. Four or five hours, we had it running. But anyway, we since have sent it off. It's frame off restoration. It's beautiful now. $120,000 later. You know, it's-, <laughs> it's brand new again. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's that original 1200 just you know add some zeros to it that's all yeah and my wife we even were kidding about that wait a minute you paid 1200 now you're gonna pay 120 to have it restored <laughs> something's wrong adjusted for inflation that's what that's called <laughs> right right so switching gears a little bit we talked about corvettes and corvette racing and we find that you're also involved in racing you have a couple sponsored vacari rail cars and for those that don't know what those are drag racing cars the ones you kind of see like you know the big top fuel cars so tell us a little bit more about how you got into that side of the vehicle world and your builds and do you do any drag racing yourself have you gone down the strip oh yeah i'm still licensed in nhra supercomp i still retain my license but the way I got started, my brother-in-law had, had the Belvedere 426 Hammer. He used to go out to the track and we'd go out and watch him. Southland Dragway here in Homa, Louisiana. My dad owned land right next to the track. And the opening event there with all the big name guys, Dime Gall, Snake, all those guys were there for the opening. I was in the tower as a young kid watching the races. And you know, when I see that, I got kind of hooked on that. And as I got older, I did some racing. And then after I got married and had kids, I bought a 82 Corvette, all two doubt chassis, super comp car. I raced that. And then when my oldest son was eight, I bought a junior dragster for him. He's very good. He won his first race. Now he runs top dragster. It's right below alcohol. He's been second. And he's also won the division 2013 and won the whole division of NHRA top dragster. From there, my youngest son got involved. I was working day and night in construction during the day. When I get home, I have to take care of Corvettes. I got race cars I got to deal with. I got tractor trailers. You know, we would just burn it on both ends. But anyway, throughout my kids' careers, they had five dragsters and a junior funny car. In my museum, I have all of those up on the wall. And then I have all the Draxes. We have three big Draxes, top Draxes that we've run. Since we're talking about racing, are you a fan of any other racing? Formula One, IMSA, sports car, endurance? I've always been drag racing. 
I mean, I got a lot of friends that like NASCAR stuff. I've been invited to the NASCAR races. That's just not my thing. I can't sit there and just look at cars going in a circle. I'm not beating anybody up. That's their thing. I like drag racing. I pat them on the back, you know, and we sell NASCARs. I think they're great, but that's just not my thing. You know, fair enough. We're going to pop this thing into third here, and we're going to talk about your sweet spot. We're going to talk about auctions, and I know it's something that William's been chomping at the bit to talk about, too, because as we've learned in the past, he does some brokering himself. As you said, your day job, general contracting, you've been into cars, collecting cars, personal collection, museum, all these kinds of things. So did you start an auction company so you could get your hands on some of the better stuff before it went to market? <laughs> well, it wasn't really planned. One of my best friends, Henry Shane, he owns cars of yesteryears. He's a local developer here. He's probably the largest apartment owner here in the New Orleans market. He has a 150 car collection and he used to be the Cruise International sponsor. You remember Cruise way back when? Yeah. Well, when Henry's business blew up and he just got out of control and he couldn't be the sponsor anymore, he told me, he said, you take it and you run with it. You build it, do whatever you want with it. And I did. We were having auctions at Boomtown Casino. And the second year, some guys called me and said, man, we want to start this little cruise in Biloxi. We want you to move over because Biloxi Gulf Coast is beautiful. I agreed. And the first year of cruising the coast, probably had 600 cars, maybe not that many, because I had already had an auction planned. So I didn't do the first year, but I was involved with them putting it together. And then the second year, is the first year I had the auction at Cruising the Coast and we sold the Imperial Palace collection at the Imperial Palace Casino. And from there, it was on every year doing the sales there. And I don't know if you're familiar with Cruising the Coast. We were voted the best car show by USA Today for the fourth time. Oh, wow. Last year, 9,630 something cars were in the cruise and they probably had two times that many that wasn't registered. Because of the impact on the local area, the state and the cities asked us to do an impact study, and we did. And it's a 30 plus million dollar impact for a week. There's 260,000 people come for the event over 10 days. That's outstanding. I tell everybody, y'all, when I go around the country at different auctions and all, they're missing out. And when they do come, they say, man, I don't understand why we haven't been here for years now. You know, I've always tell people, the auctions, it's a fun thing to come experience. Pete, in your opinion, why an auction over all these other options that are out there for a car buyer or a collector? I much prefer buying at an auction than buying online. At an auction, you can touch, you can feel it, you can look at it. So most cars that are online ultimately came from an auction. Some dealer or somebody bought it at an auction, improved it, did whatever they had to do, and put it online. That is very true. And people don't realize that. You know, they're not doing the research on the car thoroughly enough to find out its whole history. But yeah, you're 100% correct in that. Majority of them come through an auction at one point or another in their life. Years ago, I bought two Superbirds from a guy. One of them was a Hemi and one was, I think, a full 40. I bought them. I sold them at the auction. I think for the pay, I got around 400000 for both of them. The buddy of mine that bought the Hemi car kept it in his collection three, four years. He sold the car, I think it was 350. Well, a dealer takes it, puts it on his website, doesn't get any bites, sends it to the auction in Scottsdale. That car, same car that I sold at auction, brought $1,400,000. Car wasn't worth that. They got caught up in the frenzy of the auction. 
and my buddy was there. And it's a shame to say, but buyer got caught up in it and was raising his own bids. It got out of hand and then the car sold. Point is that call was at an auction that somebody could have got a better deal and it sold for crazy money. People feed off that energy. And to your point too, it's like, who are you actually bidding against? Bidding against yourself. The auction company's goal is obviously trying to get the most money for the client, but also for themselves because obviously fees and whatnot. Unfortunately, some people get caught up in that and they end up paying up way more than they should. And then hopefully it's they love the car. They'll hang on to it for a long time. But yeah, it does happen quite a bit. When things like that happen, you better like the car better than your money. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my problem you got out of hand because we have people that come bring us cars that they have bought from other auctions. And I'm honest with people. This is a family auctions. We tell people up front what we can do for you. We help you. I'm at the back door helping people get cars in. I'm at the auction podium. I'm not sitting on some Ivo Tile office that's not involved. I'm very involved. And I tell people when they bring a car, and they tell me they got 100000 in reserve. And I said, sir, I'll be honest with you. It's only my opinion, but I think this car's worth fifty. Oh, well, I paid $85,000, $90,000. I said, the top of the market's fifty, dollars so I will try it for you. And a lot of people end up losing money because they just didn't know what they were buying. You know, I've run that situation many times, helping someone with the car to try and sell it. They're on the fence about going which route. I'm like, well, I'm going to go to the auction, you know, because they told me this. I'm like, well, yeah, they're going to tell you that. But it's not worth that because they want the car in the auction to keep their numbers up. But I'm like, hey, I go to your car, do what you want. Two months later at the auction, they called me back. Oh, hey, Will, man, you know, I should have listened to you. You're right because I spent all this money shipping it there and all this stuff. Come back, like, look, I, I was just being honest with you, but hey, you do what you want to do. But it's unfortunate that it happens quite a bit. They listen to that little voice that's talking over here from, say, the Scottsdale auction people and you know those locations, and you know, they're just trying to get. Oh, we had fifteen hundred cars. Oh, we had nine. You know this kind of situation. It's like, well, what did you really do for them? That's the thing. Yes, I had a situation where a car was getting out of hand on prices on the auction block. There was two friends bidding on it, and I just walked over there, and and I knew what the reserve was, and the bids were way over the reserve. The seller was happy. And I had to do it because I owe it to my customers. I just said, do you realize what you're bidding on? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them said, well, my wife, it was a white T-bird, beautiful. Absolutely dropped that gorgeous car. But when you get north of 100, it don't make sense. No. And I said, the seller's happy right now. Why are y'all doing this? I told them both and they were on their own and one of them got it and he still has it today. But they like the car. They like the car better than their money. It can quickly sour some people too on coming to auctions, which is, you know, to your point, you know, going to that and touching and feeling, seeing the car and maybe even hear it run, whatnot. But it can sour people after that experience. Like, oh, I got taken on this or, uh, you know, wrong place, wrong time. There's a lot of auction comes out there, but you got to deal with the right ones and go to the right auctions where they're going to treat you fairly. I've got... Thank you cards and letters from so many customers. I got a call today, a guy from South Florida. He says, man, y'all treat people so nice. He registered 12 cars today. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I got a lot of that repeat business and because they know I'm always available by phone. They can call me anytime. I got it on vibrate. It's done one or three times while you and I were talking. And as you know, that treat your customer right. You have a customer for life. It's simple. It's a very good model to live by. That's what I've always done. So I'm going to treat you right, treat you fair, and treat you honestly, because I want you to not only come back, but I want you to recommend me to other people. I'm sure you get it too, saying, well, hey, yo, so-and-so sold their cars to you guys yo, a year ago, whatever. Hey, I want to bring some cars too, because you didn't treat them so well. Look, I've been doing auctions now almost 30 years. 
Everybody has got their title and everybody's got paid and I have not been sued. Not one time. Because I told my people from day one, if we can't do it right and be nice to people, let's stop right now. Stop. So that's my motto. I mean, my family's all involved and it's been working. I don't want to be the biggest and I'm not going to tell you I'm the best, but I'm going to sure work hard to make sure my customers happy. It's all on I've spoken with other auction companies before, but it's always been one of these things that I, I sort of shied away from. And I've come to the auction scene late. And I actually experienced my first car auction live back at Le Mans earlier this year. If I summarize it into two words or one phrase, it was like this quiet chaos. There's so many moving parts and so many pieces to it. And it was intense and the bidding and all this stuff. And to your point, you do get wrapped up in it. But it also made me stop and pause and think, well, why haven't I come to an auction before? And and you were talking about online versus auctions and, and things like that. But it also made me wonder, why not get a broker if I'm going to try to find a car, a specific car, right? Somebody like William, what he does, or just direct sale. Granted, some of these cars, you're not going to go to AutoTrader or Cars.com to find them, but there's a lot of different avenues here. You go to the right auction, you can pay less at an auction than buying through a broker. Not always, but most of the time you can. If you do your homework, the auction is a better buy. But it's fun also. Because like I said earlier, I mean, most cars that end up at dealers or whatever, at some point in its life, it went through an auction. We've got people that have bought Porsches, let's say brand new Porsches. They don't trade them in because they don't get any money for them on a new car. They send them to our sale and they'll get more and the buyer's happy. You know, we work with people. I mean, if we have to, we work on commissions so that the buyer and the sellers are happy. And it's a fun outing. Like I keep saying that, especially cruising the coast. We have so much going on. There's burnout contests. You know, we have the Beach Boys playing. We have cruisings. I mean, people get there at two, three o'clock in the morning to get a good parking spot for the cruisings. And we have six or seven casinos. All of them have something going on at that event. And it's just so much going on. We got the swap meet and we got the auction. We got road rallies. It's 30 miles of hot rods all along the beach. Is that in October? Yes. It starts the first weekend in October and it runs to the second. Our auction is the fourth through the seventh. It's four days this year because we're doing now spring and fall. The spring's in April in conjunction with the Crawfish Festival and then the fall sales with cruising the coast at the same convention center in Biloxi. I just had to come down for that this year. Yeah, please do. You, you'll love it. The weather's nice. You're right there on the Gulf and it's beautiful area. Really is. He's just making me want to go to his event more and more in October. <laughs> Y'all are more than welcome. That is a, just an event in itself that people like to come and enjoy and they buy a car too. Yeah. You'll be that much more excited about your acquisition and more than likely you might be able to get a better price on it. Let's go and see what we can do. Especially like a new buyer, someone that is just getting into say a collector car, exotic car, whatever it may be. It really gets them into and being part of that. You know, all the ancillary stuff that goes on, like you were saying with all those other events that you guys have. Say, look, there's so much more you can do with your car than just buying it and then parking your garage and go on a Sunday drive. You know, there's clubs, there's all the things you can do. It's really getting them into the car world. You know, for like what you guys are doing on there, it's fantastic because it's not just about the auction, it's about all these other things that you guys got going on too that people can do with their cars. It shows people like, hey, if I get a car, I can go to this auction and tomorrow or the next day, I can be part of this. It's getting people involved and get them into it. 
One of the other things I've also noticed across the different folks that I've talked to and even going to the auction that I was at, it seems like a hassle-free experience, right? Again, you get to see the car ahead of time, get to talk to people. There's the whole energy of the event itself, but it seems like the process, especially now in our digital age, has been very streamlined. There were guys on the phone, there's guys bidding online, you have brokers there, people in person with their little paddles, you know, all this kind of stuff. That's also partly in part because of the auction company and the processes that they've put in place. So Pete, over at Bakari Auto Auctions, what have you guys done to streamline the process and make it a hassle-free experience for the bidders as well as the sellers? Well, you're right. We've got a lot of moving parts going on. The first thing that we do to make it really hassle-free, you know, because there's so many people coming to cruising the coast, 260,000 people, a lot of people don't come prepared. In other words, they don't come with cash or they don't come with a bank letter. Keesler Finance is right there. And literally, you give them your name, address, and social security number, they'll approve you in less than five minutes for an amount. People, they don't realize how quick that takes because all they're doing is checking your credit score. you got good credit, they're going to loan you $100,000. <laughs> and I've got friends that I'm talking about people with deep pockets. And the girl at Keesler has developed a lot of friends. And she'll joke with him. Give me your driver's line. Give me your credit card. Let me go see if you're a good credit. And she'll come back and say, you're good for half a million dollars. And some of them said, well, what's the rate? So 2%. Well, shoot, I'm going to use your money instead of taking my money out. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's like, man, this is good. So anyway, we make that hassle free. If somebody comes in and's never been to an auction, and my girls at the bidder registration desk, they are trained to pick that out. If somebody don't know the process, they will let one of our car salesman people know, and they will walk them through the process and kind of stay with them, walk them out to the auction, show them and explain to them what's going on, where the cars are for today to be auctioned. Don't be intimidated. If a car opens up at $100,000, that's just the auctioneer getting the auction going, but he's going to drop down to, let's say, $25,000. So don't bid at $100,000. Wait till he drops down and then get in. It's easy process. We've got transportation there. Everything is done right there. And even for the guys that bring cars to sell, there are detailers there cleaning them. Because for cruising the coast, people drive them around for a week and they bring them to the back door and want to sell them and the car's filthy. Well, we got to have it all detailed, ready to go for people. It's a seamless process. I've sold cars to the Netherlands, Australia. We had a couple of cars went to Germany because we have online bidding. You can go on that and register the bid. You need to do that ahead of time because we have to pre-approve you to make sure you're for real and you got a good IP address. But then you can buy online and they wire us the money and we send the car out, ship it right to the door. You guys finding your bread and butters in an essence is, you know, the classic muscle cars, your cars from the 50s, 60s, maybe early mid 70s. I mean, or do you have more of a breadth of, like you mentioned, it will take the guy at the 2022 911 that he bought and put 1,500 miles on and he wants to run it through. I mean, you guys try and curate to what you guys know or what you guys feel is going to go, or it's like, hey, you're going to take what you guys can get. Because there's so many people there and so many different age groups, we can sell anything. We had a guy, he passed away, he donated two 20-model brass cars to Florida State University. We sold those two cars. One was 210 and another was 300 and something. And then we'll sell a Ferrari or a Lamborghini because our audience is very broad. We're not, let's say, a muscle car or a 50s collection. We have so much to pick from. 
because of our broad audience. It's kind of great to say that because we have something for everyone. Yeah. We have 20 models to brand new Corvettes. Obviously, people coming to you, or do you guys sometimes have to go out and like try and get on the phone and say, hey, I know you got some cars, you know, you didn't maybe auction them off. And what do you guys do about creating cars that way? We do a lot of that, both of that. Last year at Cruising the Coast in October, people that checked out our regular customers, we had over 225 numbers reserved for the next year that they reserve a year ahead of time because they know they're coming and they reserve them right away. And then we do a lot of cold calling to try to develop new customers because it's reality. But I've had two great customers passed away. You know, they were good customers buying and selling. So you have to go out and look for new people. And it's a shame one of them was one of my best friends that I sold my Corvette collection to. I didn't want to get involved. Meekum sold them in Dallas, the Horton collection. I went, but I mean, it was tears of my eyes because most of all the Corvettes were mine. Sentimental attachment to those things, you know, mean a lot. Are you finding as, you know, a lot of these collections obviously owned and put together by individuals on the elderly side and passing away now is coming more frequent. You see these collections come to auction sites, coming to market. Are you getting more and more of that? You're seeing a lot larger collections coming to you guys because of that? Because the family can't do the tax burden or they just don't want to deal with it because they're not into cars? Not a lot, but there is some. But what's happening, some of the competitors, when those collections do come up, the auction company are buying the collection, just buying from the family. And then they use the family's name. You'll see like the Vicari collection, Vicari estate sale. Well, Vicari, they don't own it. The auction company's already bought it and it's no reserve. So you just got to be careful when you get into situations like that. I don't play those games. If there's a car there that came from an estate, whatever the family wants to do, whether it's they want to sell it on reserve or no reserve, that's totally up to them. They've always asked me for my opinion of what the value is. It seems to be working out. We also have nonprofit organizations that have cars that have been donated to them. We auction them off for charity. Like this coming year, we have a prototype 1956 Cadillac. 56, they were trying to do headlights out. Cadillac built this car. And well, this guy bought it and he's donating to a charity that we're going to auction the car for the proceeds go to build this home for all the children in Manila. And this organization has built them all over the world for homeless kids. We've got those kind of cars coming to us. And it's just a, a lot of different cars coming in from a lot of different avenues. You mentioned about like reserve, no reserve stuff. I mean, do you guys just put it to the owner saying, here's the two routes you can go. It's your decision. Or do you try and start out saying, hey, no reserve or hey, it's all up to the owner? It's about the customer to me. It's not about the dollar and it's not about the car. It's whatever the customer's expectations are. I don't push no reserve because I don't want a customer to be upset. You know, if there's nobody in the room that wants that kind of car and it goes up and it sells for $5,000 because it's a great deal, maybe they should have had a $10,000 reserve on it and it might have sold for twelve five or twenty five or whatever. I just kind of feel a customer out. A lot of auctions will get you in no reserve and they don't care about you. They want the commission and send you on your way. That ain't me. That is not me. I'm worried about my customers. That's awesome to hear. 
And William brought up something really important when you're talking about estate planning, because that is a hot topic these days. He's 100% right. And just to remind our audience, we had Jim Cruz from Classic Auto Insurance, who started a service called Carnection that works with folks like yourself. I'm sure you're familiar, Pete, where you basically preset this stuff, especially with the family member before they pass away to say, what's going to happen to my collection? How is it going to get broken up? Which auction company do I want to work with? Making all these plans ahead of time, really sitting down and doing estate planning and working in conjunction with the auction companies. That way, the family, to William's point, who doesn't have an interest in daddy's Corvette, it can go to the right place or it can be donated to the right museum or things like that. You know, there's a lot of moving parts there. I just want to remind folks that it's on both ends. The auction companies are involved in this, as well as the estate planners, as well as the owners themselves. I tell customers, you got to be realistic on their expectation on their prices. I have a customer that almost every year he sends me his insurance list. And I don't know why he does, because I got the one from last year in my desk. He'll say, look at my list of cars. Has these cars went up or down so I can insure? And I said, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jim, Jim, stop, stop. You bought these cars 10 years ago, let's say, and you paid nothing for them. I've already got the insurance up on these cars. Like, let's say you paid 50000 for a car 10 years ago. You already got insured for one fifty. You're good. Yeah. Think about it that the car's worth 200 today. How much money do you want to insure these cars for? You're wasting money, I say. You already got $100,000 over and above what you paid for. Now, you're not in it to hurt the insurance company. If something happens, you want to be covered. Is 100000 enough? He says, yeah. I said, well, why do you want to pay for more insurance? So don't be overinsured is what I'm saying and paying for all of that. It's almost like, what do you got planned? <laughs> exactly. Are you planning to create a flood or a fire? <laughs> right. If you're not doing any of that, you're good. Why do you want to throw all this money away? And so the reason I bring up this stuff about estate planning is that part of a lot of these car collections is also memorabilia and Petroliana that goes with it that people have created, let's say these garage malls or these shrines to their beloved vehicles, whether it's Porsche or it's Corvette or it's Alfa Romeo or it's a combination thereof. Do you guys at Vacari handle the collections as well as the cars or solely strictly dealing with the vehicles? We handle the collections also like at cruising the coast the first day of the sale is strictly memorabilia. Then we have a gentleman that has like 90,000 lots of Hollywood memorabilia. And I said, wait a minute, well, Tom, I can't take that, but I'll take 500 pieces. And we got a lot of automotive memorabilia. So we yes, because, you know, quite honestly, if you're there at an auction and you're a car guy, you buy memorabilia also because you're going to put it on your garage wall. I couldn't tell you what the color of my wall is in my garage because I got <laughs> so much stuff on the wall. For years when I was involved with NHRA in the Heritage Series, that's when they have the reunions and all. At the banquets, they would have a backdrop. And I think I have six or seven of them. Every year at the end of the banquet, they would auction off the backdrop. All the drivers would sign it. Snake, Don Prudhomme, Manzoni, all the old time, they sign them all. Well, I got like six or seven of them. They're all on the walls and they use, they're like maybe 12 by 30. They're great. People walk in and look at it and they start seeing all the signatures on it. So let's talk a little bit about the trends, what's hot in auction sales right now. William mentioned earlier when he was talking about, you know, do you cater to just a specific genre of car at the auction? It sounds like you guys are a little bit more open, but on the sales side, there's certain pockets in the market that are really hot right now. It looks like 90s cars 
JDM and imports, you know, the Asian cars are really hot right now, especially in a certain demographic and age group. And then trucks have also followed in that trend. Are you seeing those as the next big thing on the auction scene? Or is there something else that's really kind of bubbling to the surface? Well, that's what's hot today. I don't think that's the next. That is hot today. We need to try to figure out what is the next car coming up because Broncos, late 70 Broncos, bringing 80, 120, you know, $150,000. Who would have thought? I'm hearing the same thing about square body Chevys too. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it was for a while the 63 split window and they bring in big money. I think it kind of cooled off a little bit on them right now, but unless you do a resto mod out of it, it'll bring, you know, five, six hundred thousand. You know, the resto mods, I think, is where the money is today. But, and I'm going to say this, it's got a a but. Resto mods got to be tastefully done, okay? Because I've seen some resto mods that are are renders. But if it's very tastefully done, like a new car, man, it knocks it out the park. You think there's some cars out there that will just never be desirable or they're just weird enough that only like a click is interested in them? Have you seen some things come across the block that you're just like, why is this even here? I've seen some weirdest cars that you think that would never bring any money. But, you know, I'm a laugh when I say that a Yugo, I can guarantee you a Yugo will never bring any more money than it does today. (laughs) (laughs) But there are other cars that are going to surprise you. People are going to take them because they used to have it when they was a kid and they want one and the prices go up on them. For me to sit here today to tell you what I think is the next car, man, that's hard because there's so many cars out, so many out there. Looking back over all the years you've been doing this, what is the record setting car? What was the car that sold for the highest really shocked everybody at a Vicari auto auction? It was a 73 Corvette. It had 12, 13,000 original miles. It was the original owner. I had known the car. When the car came in the auction block, the gentleman that sold it, he had looked at other auction companies. And because what I way I conduct myself, he said, you the guy, you're going to be honest with me. The car comes in the block and he told me, he said, everything on this car is original except the distributor cap, the water pump, and the tires. I said, okay, good. And and being a callback guy, I ran the numbers and sure enough, everything was matching numbers, all dated correctly. And I've known the car for a long time, but you know, I didn't know it back in the eighties. But anyway, when he, when the car came in the block, his grandsons each had a tire, an old tire. He had the distributor cap and the water pump and he put it right there. And he says, those are the original parts. And that is an original car. Now, 73 Corvette in your wildest dreams. What do you think it should bring? I'm a test shell from them. I mean, standard, not talking anything special motor-wise or anything like that? No. Small block, automatic with a red car. Automatic boot, 45 grand. <laughs> okay. What's your other thought? I'm going to go on the high end and say a buck and a quarter. <laughs> Try $265,000 and I had three or four people fighting over it. Wow. Fighting over it. I mean, it was a spectacular car right? One owner, he had the original title. We had it in the office, but he put the 1973 title on the table. And I asked the buyer, I said, why? Why? Please tell me. I'm going to call that guy. But we set the world record here today. He said, well, I've got the sister car toy. I said, what do you mean? He said, I have the convertible red just like this with 10,000 miles on it. (laughs) And I said, oh, wow. You know, and he didn't tell me that 
until after he won the bid. And then when it was all said and done, I just so happened to go in the office and I told the girls what just happened. And my office manager says, Pete, that guy was prepared to go twice that much. I said, what? He said, yeah, when he registered the bid, he told me he was going to go twice that. He was going to go half a million if he had to. It's like, really? You should have, you know, we, we don't want that. Yeah. That's too much for that call. But he's still happy with it. I talked to him. But anyway, probably when you compare wreckage, because like you said, 25, you know, 50, or maybe a buck and a quarter, that's all they bring in. They wasn't bringing 265. We had 69 Camaro Copos before they were bringing 200. We were selling them for 300. I will say this. Our auction has been successful. We have not been the biggest. A lot of dealers come to us because they get better buys at our auction. And then they can sell them at their offices or program or online or whatever. What's next? What's next for you, Pete Vicari? And what's next for Vicari Auto Auctions? What's in the future? Well, we just want to make it the two auctions a year that we're having bigger and better and just stay the course. We've got a good plan of action. I do not want to travel around the country. I just want to do two sales a year, but handle it very personable with our customers and just make them bigger as it is. You know, doing a lot of sales, you, you lose the quality. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to handle my customers properly. So with that, we've reached the point where I get to ask you our final wrap-up question. Pete, any shout-outs, promotions, or anything else you'd like to share that we didn't cover thus far? I've been blessed. I got a great family, great business. I'm in a general contracting business. And I was able to not only merge into, because I collect cars to do the auction business, but to collect my own cars. But I mean, I just invite everybody to come down the cruising the coast. If you have not been, when you get there, you'll be shocked and you'll be coming for years. And October is our best weather. That's when you have all the festivals around because it's really great, cool. It's not as hot. It's a great time. And it's a family event. I tell that all the time. This is a family event. This is not a bunch of guys. You know, you'll see people out there with their entire family. But, you know, guys, I got to say this. I've been blessed. I have a great family, great business, great wife and kids. The family, you know, that I have is able to afford me this opportunity to do all this stuff. And I'm blessed with that. Pete Vicari's dedication to his customers is evident as he goes the extra mile, offering vehicle documentation and storage services, including caring for the vehicles in his museum until the new owners can take possession. It's a personal experience when dealing with Vicari Auto Auction Company, and his consigners are more than the average car guy versus the mega collectors. And Vicari offers consigners a choice you can put a reserve on. To learn more about Vicari Auctions and how you can acquire your next dream car or visit their collection, be sure to check out www.vicariauctions.com or follow them on social at Vicari Auction on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube. With that, Pete, I can't thank you enough for coming on BreakFix, sharing your story and your passion for Corvettes and telling us all about the next auction we should be attending, especially in the beautiful city of Biloxi there on the Gulf Coast. So thank you for everything you're doing. And we hope to see you here very soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pete. Okay, okay I'll keep in touch, all right? If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you.
Hey everybody, Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, gummy bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.